For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Voting has already started in primaries across the state. Last week, we spoke about the GOP elections to replace Senator Jim Inhofe. The race for Senate left a vacancy for Congressional District 2 in eastern Oklahoma. The primary currently has 14 Republicans vying for the open seat. Neva, who do you think is going to get the most votes in this race? I don't I think that's anybody's guess. <laughs> I, I think what we have is a race where you have 14 people each have a little slice of the pie. There hasn't been a dominant candidate emerge. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think we have a race that potentially you have a lot of single digit single digit uh, folks. And then you you really have to wait and see who emerges um, and and winds up in this runoff. And I think I think it is fascinating. I mean, we have six of the, the 14 have served in the legislature, either, you know, current, you know, we're in the legislature or we're in the legislature sometime back. Um, you know, we have other folks that have a profile, a police chief, a tribal uh, council member, a, a former school superintendent. I mean, you have you have some folks that have their own niche uh, in some part of the district, but no one that's dominant in the district. And it's a big district, like we talked about, from far from northeast Oklahoma all the way to southeast Oklahoma, many many counties, and I. I think the only fascinating thing I've seen just in in recent days, I mean, right here at the end, is that there was a super PAC that emerged called, I think it was a fund for a working Congress that dumped $125,000 in these last four or five days before the primary against uh, Josh Burkeen, a candidate from Durant, former state senator, um, and I thought that was uh, an interesting an interesting twist in this that you would have in the mix where people are buying for just name ID and to get and to get traction in a positive way that we see an outside group come in with a with a decent amount of money uh, putting it on the airwaves uh, uh, certainly trying to influence the election with a pretty hard hitting uh, spot that says basically that uh, you know uh, Burkina is not the guy now Burkina also has been someone who got Jim Bridenstine, former uh, first district congressman's endorsement, someone who has, Burkine has ties to the late uh, Dr. Tom Coburn, uh, having worked with, worked in, uh, on his staff. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we, we have some fascinating twists here. We're just going to have to see when the dust settles next Tuesday, uh, who the two folks are, and then who the folks uh, that didn't make the runoff where they gravitate? Do they right. have any constituency and can their endorsement have some influence in the following eight weeks in a runoff that, again, has fairly low interest? I mean, we've not seen a lot of interest in this race, but um, but I, I think we will we will see whether any of these folks had enough of a base that they could just put a ground game together to get them to round two. Ryan. Well, and, and in any other political season, there would be a lot of attention paid to this race. I mean, an open congressional race uh, in the second district in Oklahoma is one that you know would be the the center uh, could be the centerpiece campaign uh, an election that everybody watched. But when you've got a gubernatorial race, you've got two U.S. Senate races, you've got competitive statewide elections. Um, you know, there's there's a lot that takes the the oxygen out of the room, and so that any outside groups are spending any money on the second congressional race. When, you know, I don't want to say that members of Congress are inconsequential, but when you're talking about one vote out of 
435, and uh, you've got a Congress that's you know virtually a gridlock, uh, either within you know, the Congress or within the Senate. Or you know, there's there's just not a lot that's happening there. And so having uh, having that kind of outside influence come in at all is is really surprising. Uh, Neva, you mentioned Josh Burkeen. I was looking at some some numbers that showed that that he had received 287,000, or he didn't receive, but there was $287,000 uh, based on one of the last reports in early June that had been spent by an independent group in favor of, of Burkeen. Uh, and then you had money being spent in favor of John Bennett. And then you had you know 40,000 in favor of John Bennett, 50,000 against him. Uh, you know, it's, it'll be interesting to see if any of that money has any sort of an effect in this crowd of a, uh, crowd of a field. But when you look at actual money raised by these candidates, it's kind of surprising. Guy Barker uh, shows up with $820,000 raised, $814,000 spent. I mean, that's that's you know over $200,000 more than Chris Schiller, uh, and then you know Chris Schiller is more than $200,000 more than Avery Fricks at $417,000. So uh, you know you've got you know two folks at the very top in terms of spending and raising uh, that are, that are kind of political unknowns. Uh, Avery Fricks. Uh, you know, having been in the state legislature, but you know, John Bennett down at two hundred sixty-eight thousand, and then you go all the way down to to David Darby. Uh, you know, around sixty thousand raised, and thirty. You know, and it's about spent about thirty thousand um, of this. What I would call like the the serious credible candidates. So it's a huge jump from David Darby all the, at sixty thousand uh, all the way up to Guy Barker at eight hundred twenty thousand. Mm -hmm. Does money make a big difference in a campaign like this when? Um, you know, you're when you're talking about this crowd of a field, can you buy your way into a runoff? I don't know. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see how this shakes out next week, for sure. Well, you know, it's interesting, too. You mentioned Guy Barker, because here's someone who uh, had has experience. He's worked at the state Supreme Court. He's well known in the oil and gas industry. So, again, these each of these individuals has a constituency. Avery Fritz, uh, Fritz as a House member, was also the uh, chair of transportation, powerful committee, a lot of connections uh, statewide. So all of them seem to be trying to use whatever their kind of core constituency is to build something off of that they can identify votes and try to get them to the polls next Tuesday. Well, Governor Stitt might be able to easily win the primary bid for re-election. The same can't be said of the down-ballot candidates he's championing. A current Attorney General John O'Connor and State Superintendent candidate Ryan Walters aren't faring as well in current polls. Ryan, why do you think the Stitt bump isn't working? Well, because I just don't think that there's a Stitt bump. Uh, you know, as much as I think the governor likes to you know, fashion himself as a Donald Trump type candidate, the, the fact of the matter is, is that Donald Trump is a, is, is a singular power in his ability to command uh, allegiance and loyalty among the Republican Party base. Um, you know, there's not been anyone else that can do that. And it's certainly not been Governor Stitt. It is really uh, surprising to see a sitting governor uh, step into these races where you have incumbent members of your own party and oppose them in a primary. I can't think of that ever happening. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I've tried to think back both to Republican governors or Democratic governors, even, uh, you know, people that have been, you know, sitting office holders, U.S. senators, uh, you know, members of Congress. I don't know that you've ever seen that kind of intra-party split uh, that you've seen right now. And it's just simply not working. I don't think that even if Governor Stitt is popular among the electorate, 
I don't think that he has the kind of influence in these primary elections that a candidate may hope that he has whenever they receive his endorsement. Um, and you know, I, I would not be surprised at all if Governor Stitt's endorsements at the end of the day um, you know, don't end up being a negative. Uh, and I think you, we've seen that even with, with Gettner Drummond um, you know, using the word appointee over and over and over again with A.G. O'Connor, you know, tying O'Connor to uh, Governor Stitt and basically saying that, you know, if you elect me, uh, if, if Gettner Drummond saying, if you elect me, you'll have an independent uh, attorney general. You won't have someone that is, uh, you know, pledged their allegiance to the governor. Um, and Gettner Drummond even told kind of a, uh, an anecdote where he said that when he talked to the governor about being appointed to attorney general, uh, when their vacancy occurred, when Mike Hunter stepped down from the post, uh, the governor then, uh, according to Gettner Drummond, put some conditions on that appointment. And he said that he expected certain things, you know, whether that actually happened or how that happened or what those conditions were. I, I don't know that we'll ever know that. Mm -hmm. uh, but Drummond then said that's when he stepped away and didn't take the appointment. O'Connor did. And now you have Gettner Drummond pointing out that John O'Connor must have accepted those conditions. Otherwise, he wouldn't be attorney general today. Neva. Well, it is fascinating. I mean, I agree with you, Ryan. It's it's fairly unique that you have uh, an incumbent governor running for re-election uh, who engages in in multiple other statewide races. And we see, as you mentioned, I mean, obviously, he is uh, very interested in his appointee to Attorney General John O'Connor uh, in that race. Uh, it had a twist because, as we remember, they had uh, uh, the Stitt campaign put up an ad that had O'Connor in it. The ad got pulled down. So it basically left it, it from all appearances, the O'Connor, the O'Connor campaign now uh, having to battle basically a give and take of negative ads back and forth with opponent uh, Gettner Drummond. So um, you hear polls uh, and everybody postures at this point on both sides uh, saying who's who's going to win. But it's it's a extremely competitive race. Drummond has in many polls uh, at least uh, weeks out. Uh, showed a fairly commanding lead. Some say that lead is shrinking. Um, and I think when you look at the uh, superintendent of public instruction race, it's a much, uh, it's a much uh, murkier um, kind of scenario because you've got uh, Ryan Walters, who really hasn't uh, kind of blown the doors open in terms of a real aggressive campaign in the minds of many just rank and file Republicans that I that I hear and talk to that uh, that see this race with four people in it. Uh, April Grace, John Cox, Ryan Walters and and Bill Crozier. Um, they see obviously uh, it going into a runoff. I think most people predict. And then what happens and who's in the runoff? I mean, there are folks that uh, at this point would say there's no given who is in the runoff, just like we talked about in, in the congressional second congressional race. But the other twist is that you have the governor coming out this week uh, endorsing uh, state auditor and inspector Cindy Byrd, who has come mm -hmm. up against uh, an onslaught of money and attack against her uh, by a relatively unknown candidate, late filer, um, uh, Steve McQuillan, who by, you know, by his own kind of style of campaign is running as someone who just basically says he's going to help Trump build the wall and be the, the, the Trump conservative and, and just attack, uh, uh, attack Byrd. And so that's a race that uh, that's interesting because the other dynamic that's been infused into it is that you have Cindy Bird saying that she believes that it's the co-founders of Epic Charter Schools 
who are funding these two PACs, Truth PAC and American Values PAC, uh, I think to the tune of at least a half million dollars that's been recorded so far as public records. So this one's going to be a slugfest to the end, and who knows what the outcome is going to be. And then you have the, the labor commissioner race yeah. where we have the incumbent, Leslie Osborne, and you have Governor Stitt endorsing Sean Roberts, a term limited legislator uh, in that race, uh, not a race that's gotten much attention in terms of uh, uh, Sean Roberts, but certainly you see uh, the incumbent, Leslie Osborne, very aggressive uh, in the campaign here in the closing stretch. So will that be a factor uh, in, in the last minute? So you, we've had some interesting twists and turns in all of these races. The backdrop is certainly the governor who is positioned even against three challengers who are underfunded candidates, every one of them. Um, but he's had this onslaught of money coming against him in, in, a, in a very rapid long fashion. Um, and he has spent, I think, uh, the reports that came out earlier this week, it was something around uh, 2.8 million that he had spent in this filing period, which is basically April uh, through um, the middle of June. So he's he's a, he has mounted an aggressive campaign for re-election. We'll see how the uh, campaign kind of uh, finishes out in terms of his impact on these races that we're talking about at the secondary level. Now, Tuesday's primary elections also includes other statewide and congressional races, as you mentioned. Neva, are there any, especially in the congressional side, the other four districts that you're, you're kind of keeping an eye on? Uh, I mean, I think uh, with all of those races, it's a foregone conclusion that uh, the incumbents are in excellent position to uh, uh, be win the nomination, be reelected. Um, I mean, we've we've seen no real um, surprises so far. There there are candidates out there in those races that are working, that are trying to uh, build a coalition, trying to be competitive. But again, money is a big part of this when you start talking about congressional and statewide races, uh, because you have so many people you've got to communicate and get your message out to that you just can't do it with uh, with without the sufficient funding to get that message out and be be perceived as a credible campaign who can be competitive against incumbents that quite frankly when we look at their track record look at their polling look at uh, look at the whole picture from their campaign standpoint are are have proven to be highly uh you know highly qualified candidates who have uh, uh been very popular with their constituents in these respective congressional districts ryan well, you know, I think one of the races, and, and Eva mentioned that that I'm I'm watching closely is the state labor commissioner. I, I think uh, labor commissioner Leslie Osborne. You know, she and I served uh, together in the legislature, often often at odds with one another. But I have a great deal of respect for Commissioner Osborne. I think that uh, during, you know she she really stepped into the role of, of labor commissioner and and you know recognized the the potential uh, in that in that agency and uh, in that department and has has really you know done things like cross-trained inspectors so that the same person could expect an elevator that could also go and inspect uh, an amusement park ride. Mm -hmm. You know, not very you know, sexy, exciting campaign stuff, but just, you know, just real nuts and bolts governance. Uh, you know, really like I'm going to get in there and uh, and just and just do the work. And that's that's the kind of public servants that I think Oklahomans at the end of the day really want. Uh, they, they want somebody that will roll up their sleeves and get in there 
and not spend all of their time talking about, uh, you know, the, the big lie or building a wall or any of that stuff. But, you know, making sure that when we when we go to Frontier City that, uh, you know, that there's a, a lower chance uh, that we get stuck upside down on the silver bullet. I mean, that's that's the kind of government that we need in Oklahoma. It, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. You you know, but it, I don't think it's happened in a long time. And I don't I don't think that it's happened under Commissioner Osborne's watch. That should really be your campaign. Uh, under under my time as labor commissioner, no one's been stuck upside down on the silver bullet. <laughs> uh, but but I, I do think that I do think that she'll prevail there. I don't think that the governor's endorsement against her is going to carry the day. Um, and and I, I agree with Neva. The the incumbents and the other congressional seats in the in the state those are foregone conclusions. Uh, you know they they have to go out there and raise some money and and show up at the pie suppers and and uh, and do what they need to do. But you know they're they're going to win re-election, and that's just really that's the nature of incumbency and the nature. And so when you combine incumbency with with districts that are drawn uh, considerably in, in considerable favorable terms mm -hmm. to those incumbents and Republicans in general, um, you know they're going to get reelected. You know it's interesting too. The other uh, the other race that has I think the likely potential to have a runoff is the Corporation Commission race, where mm -hmm. you have four Republicans running. And you have Senator Kim David and Todd Thompson appearing to be kind of uh, in in the front of that four way pack uh, with Harold Spradling and uh, Justin Hornback uh, uh, also on the ballot, but having mounted a fairly limited campaign from all indications. So it will be interesting to see in that race, which in Oklahoma, the Corporation Commission is a significant uh, uh, place where people pay attention to who the uh, elected officials are that serve as corporation commissioners. So, um, so that one, if it if it goes to a runoff, uh, will be one that will get a lot of attention, probably more attention than in the primary because they'll have a head to head and and what their positions are and how they interact with the industries that they would be responsible for regulating would be a big part of that campaign. Meanwhile, state House and Senate members are also working to get their party's nods for seats. Ryan, any of these have your attention? Yeah, I think that, you know, one that's interesting, and this is yet another one where the governor has, has weighed in, and that's Senate District 22, where you have incumbent state Senator Jake Merrick, who uh, was elected to uh, a uh, to fill a remainder of a term. Uh, and, and he's running against a, uh, a Republican challenger in that seat. Um, and if you look at uh, Senator Merrick, he really seems to be the kind of Republican, you know, the prototypical Republican that, uh, you know, Stitt shouldn't have any problem with. But if you look, one of the things that he did is he, he voted against uh, the president pro temp, uh, Senate president pro temp, Greg Treat and Governor Stitt's uh, so-called school choice uh, legislation this year that died in the state Senate, didn't even make it out of the Senate. And and now the guy, uh, the senator has a, uh, a primary opponent and you know, I think that, um, you know, Kristen Thompson, who is, uh, you know, who non-doc describes as a political newcomer, um, is is campaigning, you know, largely, I think, on that endorsement um, and trying to, to win a primary. And, you know, turnout's going to be, the turnout in these primaries is, is always going to uh, really determine a lot. Um, you know, I when you when you get outside of that second congressional district um, and and you start to think about who's really driving turnout in these primary races you know that that's not always up to those state legislative candidates that are on the ballot you know they, they may be able to drive turnout somewhat but it, oftentimes they're at the mercy of the turnout that's driven by you know top ticket 
uh, you know, statewide uh, candidates or, or more high-profile congressional district candidates, and that's just not the case here. So, you know, this may be one of those uh, handful of instances where the governor's uh, endorsement may make a difference, depending on what that turnout looks like. Neva. Well, you know, it's interesting looking kind of at the total picture of legislative races. So many of these races were decided really on filing day. I mean, Mm -hmm. we had so many races uh, where uh, only one person filed. Um, I think it was 55 total in the House and the Senate. So we started out with not that many uh, highly contested primaries on either side of uh, on either side of the political fence. But when a couple of them that seem to have popped up high on the radar as potential switches uh, in the Republican primary, least very competitive races right now. One is uh, in the Bartlesville area where Wendy Stearman is the incumbent and she's being challenged by local businessman John Kane. That seems to be a race that um, uh, is getting a lot of attention in that area. And um, again, when you talk to folks on the ground there that are in the community, uh, they they say that this is certainly a race that is uh, very competitive. And you know, many people say that there is the potential for uh, for the incumbent to be. Uh, uh, to be uh, defeated on Tuesday. We'll just have to wait and see on that one. The other one is Logan Phillips um, from Mounds. Uh, he has two Republicans in the race against him. That's up in the Bixby area, that general area. And the interesting thing in that race appears that Logan Phillips was the only no vote um, among Republicans on the transgender bathroom bill. And that seems to be the entire focus of the campaign by his uh, opponents um, uh, to uh, uh, to really build a contrast and try to uh, and try to uh, defeat him in this in this primary. So we'll see if uh, if a if a local is- if an issue can drive uh, turnout change uh, uh, public sentiment. And you know, in this instance, you have someone ironically who defeated an incumbent Republican himself four years ago when he picked up the seat. So. Yeah. Uh, there'll be some fascinating uh, changes, I think, uh, uh, but they'll be few and far between just given the basic setup that we have at the start with with few contested races. The ones that are, we're getting uh, some late focus and some late infusion of money. We'll just have to see when the dust settles, whether it made any difference or not. Right. Well, I, I think, you know, in Logan Phillips, Representative Phillips's case, I mean, his his district is so new. He was His district right. is very different than it was before redistricting. So the district that he won, um, I think that if he were running in that district, we wouldn't be talking about a, a very competitive primary election right now. But he picked up, you know, enormous uh, chunk of new voters that he's having to reintroduce himself to. And he's reintroducing themselves to these voters in the context of a, of a campaign that's focusing on, on one issue. When you look at Representative Phillips, here's somebody who's been a leader on broadband issues. I mean, you know, th- again, the, the, the stuff that you know, the, the, the real nuts and bolts, the infrastructure type work uh, that doesn't get a lot of attention, doesn't end up on the headlines, uh, but is somebody who's really positioned himself as, as a real leader and, and uh, an emerging expert in, in policy on that area. The other race that, that I'm looking at is, you know, my race uh, in, in House District 88, not my race, but, you know, the race that represents my house uh, in House District 88. <laughs> Uh, with incumbent Representative Maury Turner uh, facing a Democratic challenger in Joe Lewis. I've been on vacation uh, and I came home and and I thought that I would get home to, you know, four or five mail pieces uh, and and, you know, several things 
on my door from from the two candidates. I didn't come home to a single mail piece. Uh, so ma- this is this is my my public. Put me back on your mailing list, people. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how I ended up. I'm on everybody else's mailing list. Uh, but uh, you know, and if you know, that's a uh, you know. Representative Turner there in their their first term in, in the state legislature and winning um, winning that election you know winning re-election that first time is always the hardest re-elect is the first one uh, and then having to you know HD eighty eight unlike most legislative districts in the state that's one that is usually decided in the primary uh, for the Democrats so you know whoever wins that whether it's the incumbent uh, Representative Turner or the challenger Joe Lewis uh, you know they'll probably go on to to serve uh, in the legislature next year. Finally, there are local races, including a primary election to replace outgoing Oklahoma County District Attorney David Prater. There are four Republicans, uh, including Kevin Calvey, and then two Democrats, including Vicki Bahena, running for that. Neva, how would you handicap this race? Well, I think, again, on the Republican side, um, you've got a competitive race. I mean, you've got all four candidates out there running campaigns, uh, very much engaged with the with the likely Republican primary voters in Oklahoma County. And so um, while Kevin Calvey has been the most dominant in terms of money spent uh, and uh, kind of the coming into the race with the higher profile as a as a current uh, Oklahoma County commissioner and having been in the legislature prior to that, you still have uh, with Galen uh, Giger from the uh, uh the DA's office and a long-standing career there. You have uh, Jackie Ford, uh, who certainly uh, has been prominent in uh, in uh, trial lawyer circles, mm-hmm. and then and then the fourth candidate. Uh, it it makes for it makes for an interesting race because who will be in the runoff and where these other folks land again? Uh, do they bring anything to the mix in terms of their endorsement or their support? Because runoffs, we have to all remember, it, mm-hmm. are races where if a primary has average turnout, runoffs have half of that. Yeah. So it's a low, low turnout, late August proposition where you have to be very, very strategic in making sure that you get folks to go vote that are likely to vote, not just someone who might normally come out in November in a general election. So it's uh, it's going to be a long, hot summer for some of these folks <laughs> looking at runoffs. But uh, uh, it's a it's a ground game extraordinaire when you get to that point. Uh, Ryan. Well, uh, and we talk about how other campaigns can affect uh, other campaigns. You know, one of the elections that Oklahoma County voters are going to be looking at is a new jail. And in the Democratic primary between Mark Miles and Vicki Bahanna, uh, Mark Miles has said that he's, uh, at least as the last I saw, was undecided on the new jail. Uh, and Vicki Bahanna said that we needed one. And, it, you know, is that going to, how is that going to affect their election prospects in the Democratic primary? Um, you know, I know that there's a, a campaign out there to, to vote no on the new jail. Um, you know, my sense is that that Oklahoma voters are going to recognize that, you know, nobody wants to spend money on a new jail. Um, but the idea that we can you know, implement the kind of criminal justice reforms that were necessary yesterday, uh, tomorrow to avoid having to build a new jail to me just seems like a fantasy. Uh, so, I mean, we're going to if you if you talk to folks that work in that jail, you know, whether they're, you know, uh, officers, whether they're attorneys, uh, social workers, the folks that have been detained there and, you know, a huge number of them detained there, detained there pre-trial. I mean, these are innocent people and we're, we're housing innocent people, detaining them in, 
just a deplorable, deplorable, inhumane jail. Um, and so I, I do think that Oklahoma voters are going to recognize, Oklahoma County voters are going to recognize that they don't want to do it, but we need to build a new jail. And how that plays out in the Democratic primary for DA uh, is something that I'm going to be watching. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect, reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. The programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.